The biggest thing about building a story about your idea that someone will tell themselves is that you, I say there's two things that are really important to, to anchor it on. And one is how can you anchor your idea in something that somebody already wants? Of the two things, that's probably the easier one. I call that the goal in the book, but this is the audience goal. What is something that they're already looking for that mm. your answer provides? Um, and this is not something that you know deep down they're looking for. This is not a thing that you wish they were looking for. This is something that they're literally looking for looking right for. now. It's a it's an urgent issue, the kind of thing that they are um, being tasked to solve by their boss or that they are... You know, they're searching on their own on Google because it's, you know, it's just, yeah. you know, it's an urgent issue or it's a persistent irritant. It's something that day in, day out, it's just this thing that they always have to work around. It's a pain in the butt, but mm. what else can they do? That's the kind of thing that you want to, the more that your idea can be anchored in something that somebody already wants, the more that they're going to be automatically curious about it, the more that it's already going to be relevant to them, mm. um, the more that you can start to say and make sure, so just from an kind of idea validation standpoint, that your idea actually solves an important and urgent or persistent problem in the world, which is something I saw a lot with the absence of, and looking at TEDx applications where I'm like, this is a lovely idea, but I'm not sure what it does in the world. Yeah. Um, the second thing is, and this is by far much harder. Hello, welcome everyone to yet another episode of a song with Manfred Bawa. And I am so excited to bring this guest today uh, because uh, not because of only her background, but because what she brings to the table. Uh, she is an author. Uh, she is part strategist, message strategist. She is part keynote speaker. She has helped organizations like Johnson & Johnson, Harvard Medical School, Intel, uh, in their messaging strategies. She's also worked as executive producer for TEDx. Uh, so any of you wanting to know how do you get into TEDx and how to make a, um, you know, keynote that goes well on TEDx. She's the person you want to talk. So welcome, Tamsin, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Manfred. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Amazing. So let's start with where everybody today is, the COVID. How are things with COVID and everything that's going on in the world, which is oh, for the first time everybody is in the same boat kind of yeah yeah it's been a really interesting it's really been an interesting time i joke that it feels like we're in 2020 part three yes. but oftentimes the third movie in a trilogy is the best so let's hope you know we're good. <laughs> um it's been very interesting because i live in boston massachusetts on the eastern coast of the u.s and we were one of the places that uh where we got it early here and and got hit pretty hard. Like one of the biggest, mm. one of the first super spreader events before we knew that it was a super spreader event was at a, a Biogen conference here in downtown Boston. And that, that's that been both good and bad because it means mm. that that combined with, uh, we have enormous numbers of uh, hospitals and colleges here mm. meant that we closed down and shut down really early and have been tracking with the science pretty much from the get-go. Um, but that means that our experience here up in the Northeast has been very different than some from other areas um, 
in the U.S. And mm. so there have been times where it feels like, in addition to all sorts of other reasons, we're just absolutely living in a different plane of reality than, for instance, some of my friends who live in Florida or in Texas, uh, where the where the just the reactions and sensibilities around it have just been very, very different. So it's been interesting to see. I'm most fascinated by just looking at how differently different groups of people have experienced and interpreted and reacted to all of this. And I try to remain curious about all of that. <laughs> yeah, it is an interesting thing. And in your area of work being, you know, keynote speaking and do you see a shift that hasn't happened in the last maybe five, 10 years? Do you see any shift coming in that industry? I, I, I don't mostly yet, mostly because there just isn't, I mean, from the speaking standpoint, obviously everything just kind of shut down at least. Mm. I chose to shut everything down because I had kids that weren't vaccinated at home. They now are, but mm. um, it was just, it was, I didn't want to be the reason why my family got sick. Yes. Um, so I made a decision very early in 2020 to pivot away from the speaking aspect of things and focus mm. much, much more on, on writing. So, you know, got the book finished uh, on consulting and coaching, which is the, which is, the lion's share of my work anyway, and what I really enjoy. Mm. Um, I can say what I wish is would happen as with, as far as the mess, the kinds of messages that are people are putting out there in the world. Um, I'm, you know, there are the ones that you would expect. I think there's a lot of people who are um, doing well with messages about resilience right now. And that are, are dealing with, um, I heard a good friend of mine, Mitch Joel talk ab about how he was seeing a trend towards, um, how to activate curiosity in people. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if I were to add another topic to the list of what I hope people will start to become more interested in is in a response to all the you know, increasing polarization and yes. you know, tribalism that's happening kind of everywhere from what I can see, not just here in the U S but, but you know, in Canada and the UK and, and Eastern Europe and in European union in general, actually. Um, that I, I would love to see a rise in genuine seeking to understand how mm. other people see the world and getting a better understanding of that, not from a us versus them standpoint, but from a, listen, we all got to live in this place together. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. um, how can we, how can we find middle ground? I mean, I think that's a, that's the kind of thing that I would love to see more. Yeah. And, and that's so true that polarization is, you know, uh, it just, I think it was there, but COVID has just propelled it. It's just brought it to the center stage yeah. and you cannot ignore it anymore. That's uh, true. You know, there was, there was a time early in my career, very early in my career, um, where I was kind of the bottom rung and I was a management consultant. And it was interesting because the company at the time hadn't, you know, it was great. I was, I was making like a ridiculous amount of money as management consultants <laughs> do sometimes. Um, but the problem was the company had added a, uh, had added this consulting arm without really having any clients for the consulting arm. And so we had this phalanx of consultants with nothing to do. Mm. And I think it was one of my earliest exposures to the fact that in the absence of something to do, people will find something to do. And mm. a lot of times in the absence of something to do, people will find something to be outraged about. Um, <laughs> and so 
you know, in this example, like for, for us, it was people got really worked up about like what time people were arriving in the office. And just, it was like, but that person's arriving at this time at this point. And I just remember one of the more experienced consultants just sitting with me and maybe one or two others Mm. of us over lunch. She was like, you know what, if we were busy, this wouldn't be an issue. Mm. And so I think you're totally right, Manpreet, that is, is that in the absence of so it's not just, you know, COVID shutting things down and those kinds of things. I think it's an intersection of the fact that we've had this cessation of normal activity, cessation of interaction with people in all but the most um, kind of difficult ways, right? Mm. To, to interact in a way that's, that's that has dimensionality. We're interacting with people asynchronously on social sites and where we can be kind of hiding behind screens. We're not actually seeing people face to face. That's intersecting with, I think there's been a general de- degradation generally about us having as humans shared experiences, shared things as just as entertainment and all these other mm. things that become more and more fragmented. Um, just you take these two things and you put them together where people already weren't really interacting much and then you make them bored. <laughs> They're going to find things to get outraged about. And it's not that those things aren't outrageous, um, you know, particularly here in the U.S. I think the the upheavals of 2020 around um, the, the the killing of multiple uh, black men and women uh, in the hands of police custody um, and others, uh, that stuff is outrageous. Um, yes. But I think there's other things that, that have – What's what's sad to me is that um, I don't I don't see that level of passion around those big issues right now here in the U.S. I see that level of outrage around stuff that's mm. just not as important. And so that's kind of the thing that I again, I try to hold curiosity for those things um, rather than judgment, because judgment only leads to more outrage and more polarization. And, and I'd love to be able to model the things that I, that I wish more people did, which is like, aha, I wonder why they are acting that way. Or I wonder why they believe that, or I wonder how this perspective makes sense to them. Mm. Not, oh my gosh, they must be X in order to think, behave or act that, you know, or believe that way. But, huh, I, that's different than what I see and how I think or believe mm. or act. I, I wonder what makes them that way. And I think that the more that you can ask that of yourself and other, of other people, even why am I acting this way in a particular moment? Um, I think you have, to me, it's a path towards finding that shared experience because it doesn't take much of doing that before you start to realize that people are very much driven by, fundamentally the same things. It doesn't mean that we're all going to agree about things, but we're driven by the fundamentally the same things. And when we can see, start to see the world through other people's eyes, um, I think it starts to sharpen the edges. Mm. Uh, Excuse me. I think it starts to soften the edges with which we interact with them. Mm. And I think that that's only good because I think we've all gotten a little sharp and brittle. (laughs) Yeah, we have. And and I think that's what, COVID showed, like, you cannot hide anymore. Everybody was just, you know, sort of uh, putting it down. Maybe it's not important at work. 
I think I, I'm seeing the same thing with the great resignation. Now people are leaving jobs yep. and I've been a consultant all my life and I've been in both sides with, uh, working for the customer and working uh, as a you know person who's managing the customer. So, uh, and I see it, um, uh, you know, this thing about when you are curious, when you're open to entertain that somebody else may have a different idea or opinion to something, it, it just opens the doors very differently. So thank you yeah, for sharing I mean, that. Because I, I think I think fundamentally we all humans, we, we want to be seen, we want to be heard, we want mm. to be validated, we want to feel like we have some worth. And, um, you know, it can be difficult, but the the path to getting someone to do that for you is to extend it to them first, right? Like yes. that's, that's the way to have, like, that's the way it happens. Like you, you know, you, you say, no, no, you must listen to me, but it's like, well, if I do that, I don't have, you know, either the human nature is such that I don't have, I, I don't know that you're going to respond to that, but mm. you, know, you know, work of Robert uh, Cialdini, for instance, beautiful, stuff on the you know idea of reciprocity but if i extend to you first this genuine curiosity this genuine seeking to understand um kind of piece then generally not always but generally that's going to activate in other people the oh well you you just listened to me you heard me you gave me my space you saw me all right i'll do the same thing for you mm. and it's just I think there's this perpetual tension uh, that I see just to all the work that I've done. And this has been true for years in the yes. work that I've done around communications and change communications and brand strategy and message strategy is that I think ultimately you're faced with a choice. Do you want to be, do you want to speak or do you want to actually be heard? Mm. And I think there are people for various reasons where just getting it out for them is what they need. I definitely put myself in, in somebody who was like, well, I don't want to speak for speaking's sake, even if it's writing or whatever. Like I, if I have, if I'm going to put something out there for me, it's because I actually wanted to be heard. So what yes. can I do to help make sure that, that, that what I've, you know, that, that it's not just hitting their eardrums, right? Yes. Um, but that, but actual communication happens because you, you know, the communication does is not about the sending out of something only. It's about the receiving, receiving. of that information. Um, and I just feel like myself included, we can do a lot more to make sure that what we send send is actually received. And yes. um, I think those would be important steps for all of us to take. Yeah, you touched on a very beautiful point that can go into multiple dimensions, especially the communication and sending and receiving. Like, um, you know, it's important that your message that is sent is received well, and you are open to receive what is being sent to you. But also, I mean, uh, when you send that word receive, we just took me to a little bit on the spiritual side of the things like so many times because we're closed in whatever we're doing. We're not even receiving what God is trying to send. Uh, whatever universe is, you might call it universe, God, faith, whatever it is. But I, I just thought that was such a beautiful thing to come out of <laughs> the discussion. Of yeah, this. I mean, 
Yeah, I think and it, I think it circles back to the conversation about COVID and all of this. And and, and one of the things that, you know, I I don't know, I, 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 I love what you're saying about that, Mompreet, that sometimes that we just were closed off to whatever could be coming our way. And what mm. that made me think of was um, the work of Viktor Frankl and yes. Man's Search for Meaning. Um, and what I what what struck me so powerfully about Frankel's work is that you know, particularly in this age where there's a lot of people saying like, find your passion, find your purpose, as if there's one. Um, yeah. I don't believe there's just one. Um, and I know that that could probably be mistaken when I say like, find your red thread. But to me, that's a <laughs> that's a different thing. For me, for me, that your red thread is your operating system. It is yes. why you do what you do the way that you do it, and that is what ties together all the things that you you have purpose for and passion about. But I think that, you know, what, what Frankel said that really stuck with me is that, you know, I think a lot of times we can get trapped in saying, what does this mean? What is this? What does all this mean? Even if we're even that curious about it. Yes. Um, and there's a slight shift that he talks about that I find so powerful, which is, I'm not going to assume that there's a plan or a purpose to what out there, but I can always choose what meaning I will draw from it. Like take mm. that ownership from it and say, I'm in this situation. What is the meaning that I can draw from this? Um, because really that's the only thing I can control. I don't know if there's a purpose in a plan. Um, I'm not the kind of person who's wired to just leave it up to somebody else and mm. abdicate that responsibility um, for my own behavior. I like, you know, uh, um, but I love this idea of what meaning can I draw from this? And mm. for me, this whole situation with, with COVID and all the things that have been happening from a political standpoint with, you know, here in the U S and around the world, um, I think it's a time for, you know, that's, that's a time for self-directed curiosity, right? So a way to solve yes. polarization is to be curious about other people, but to be able to find our own path when we're bored <laughs> and, and the life seems like we're just on rerun over and over again is, mm. is to, is to self-direct and ask those questions to ourselves. Well, what meaning, what meaning can I draw? What lessons can I learn? What, what, what can I do in this situation so that this, adds more meaning to me and for me and who I want to be and how I want to move about the world. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, since you brought Viktor Frankl, uh, we can, uh, you know, his quote that, uh, you know, the between stimulus and response, there is a space and that space is our power to choose our response. And in our, in our response lies our growth and our freedom. I think that just beautifully sums it up. Absolutely. Um, Yay, Victor Frankel. <laughs> yes. Uh, I wonder sometimes how, you know, when I look at people like Victor Frankel, who could have that depth in so little to be spoken. And I think that's, it's beautifully intersects with our talk where importance of message, your ideas, and, you know, finding your red thread, which you touched upon. So uh, how about you just, Briefly give a little bit about your journey and then we'll get into what is Red Thread, why is it important and how sure. people, yeah, sure. people yeah. um, So, yeah, my, uh, I've lived, I, I, I feel like I've lived most of my life straddling worlds and oftentimes opposite ones. You know, I, mm. you know, anywhere from when I was in 
you know, high, high school, I was both in the arts community and, you know, managed the, the varsity boys baseball team. And then, mm. you know, when I went to college, I was in the business, it took a business, you know, got a business degree and I got a degree in liberal arts and American studies and art history. Um, same thing. I did the same thing. So there's always this war- time where I've been in nonprofits and mm. studying for profits at the same time as I did in mm. grad school. Um, and then even when I was in organizations, my job was to bridge the gap. So even that, you know, my, my brief but enduring turn as a change management consultant, um, you know, we were doing mergers and acquisitions. So it was about how do you bridge the gap between two organizations and two cultures. And mm. you know, when I worked in organizations, I was often in the role that had to, you know, because I was often in marketing communications roles, I was often in the role that had to bridge between an organization's audience and the organization itself. Like how do mm. we get the organization strategy out to the audience and how do we make sure that the audience, the customers, the clients, the students, you know, depending mm. on where I was working, um, that their voice was heard back. And I've just been endlessly fascinated by how, how to make, you know, what being a US, U.S. based person, what I refer to as English to English translation work yeah. better. Um, how is it that we can improve how we understand each other? Um, oftentimes, you know, when I was message and brand stra- doing message and brand, brand strategy, which I still do um, so that, you know, the the power of a brand or an organization could come across um, and then about eight, eight and a half, nine years ago now, I got involved in the TEDx organization here at TEDx Cambridge in Massachusetts. Um, and that really started to hone further my real interest in, okay, it's not just about, you know, an organization. I really fell in love with how do we help, how do I help um, these experts get these amazing world changing ideas? How do we, how do we bridge that gap? Because how mm. do we bridge the gap between academia and every day? How do we bridge the gap between you know, expertise and implementation, you know, how do we bridge the gap between an idea, which is what Ted is all about and actually making it work? Like how do you operationalize an idea? So the work of, you know, that I've been doing for the last, you know, eight, 10 years more specifically around ideas has really been about trying to answer that question. How, how do we, how is it possible? What's the method by which we can, make our ideas irresistible to people, mm. um, to the people for whom they, they would have the most impact. And so, uh, the book is a product of that as product of all that, you know, that 25 years in branded message strategy, those, you know, eight, nine years in TEDx and 13 years moonlighting as a, as a weight loss <laughs> coach as well. It's a whole other story. Um, but those three things could be kind of those three lines together really just intersected with, you know what, there's a, there actually is a way to do this. There is a way mm. to decode how we come up with idea and process an idea and make a decision to change. And that's what I wanted to figure out. I wanted to figure out how, how could I do that? How could I help other people move their ideas forward by improving how it is that they talk about? Them? Yeah. And, and that's where this book, excellent book comes in. And I'll put that in a link if anybody wants to know learn more without investing a lot <laughs> or without investing um, into uh, or committing to the, you know, more broader areas that Tamsin works in. If you just want to feel what it feels like finding and working with your ideas, I, I think this book is great. It's very simple. I That's the first thing I realized when I picked up the book. The hardest thing was to just put it down like, 
flip the pages and I had to work. I, I thought um, that, you know, like other books I will read, I'll get the keynotes. But this one, if you really want to get things out, you have to work like you have to play with that idea. And for first couple, uh, four or five days, I'm just uh, having hard time sticking to one idea. It's like, oh, I can work on this. I can work on this. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a great book. Uh, it has okay. all the tools that you need. So getting into the red thread, what is the red thread? So the simplest English. definition I can give of a red thread is it is it is a story that you tell yourself to explain why the world or you works the way that you way that it does. Um, we all do this. We all, mm. you know, oftentimes unconsciously, we all build these rationalizations, these justifications for ourselves about why you know, that person is behaving that way while we're behaving mm -hmm. this way, why what we did was right, why what they did was wrong. Um, yeah. So you see how this ties into our earlier conversation. Um, and you know, what I discovered, um, well, my hypothesis was that this these stories that we build ourselves and tell ourselves follow the same structure as the stories that we tell other people. Um, mm -hmm. So my hypothesis was, well, what if uh, we found the elements of that story that we told ourselves about an idea? Would that help us articulate the idea to other people? Um, mm. And I can tell you now, after testing it for you know, eight years, uh, yeah, it, it does actually. Um, yes. my, my fondest wish is to somehow come, you know, uh, partner with somebody in academia to actually test this, um, so that it's more than just kind of ethnographic research at this point. Um, but that's that's what I discovered. And that's what, what I was able to, to prove out, which is that there are these elements of story, like once mm -hmm. upon a time stories that it, when you can identify those elements in your own idea in your own messages and your own content, uh, a couple things happen and it's pretty exciting. One is uh, you understand your idea better. Um, yes. Our brains take shortcuts around our ideas. We kind of assume, you know, we, because our, because they are our ideas, we don't actually sometimes listen to all the steps of the story. We just say, well, this is the right answer. Not, and we kind of forget the path that we got there. Um, mm. The second thing is because those elements follow a structure of story, when you find them for your idea, you're able to very easily explain it to somebody else in language and in elements that their brains understand mm. instinctively. So that what happens is that you're able to transfer the I, your idea from your brain into somebody else's with just the minimum amount of loss, the amount of loss of meaning, a loss of understanding. Um, and because, and this is the big thing about the book, you're building not just the story you tell about your idea, but the story your audience will tell themselves about the idea. The third mm. thing about doing this is that really does a lot of what we're talking about before. Really, it really forces you to look at your own ideas from the eyes of somebody who yes. isn't yet convinced that it's the right one. And yeah. so it makes your idea stronger because you have to put it through uh, the eyes of a skeptic. And mm -hmm. we don't usually look at our ideas with you know, our own ideas with skeptics' eyes, but we sure as heck look at everybody else's that way. So yeah. this is just you know flipping flipping that script around a little bit and really building it up from there. Yes. And, and, you know, uh, one of the things that I think this book does nicely is that it, it, it's for, it's not labeled for just one person. Like anybody can do it. People in sales, everybody's doing something right. They are selling their ideas. People 
IT people, technical technicians going in inter interviews, uh, going in the pro project presentations. Uh, everybody is selling some idea, but not everybody understands the uh, structure behind the idea or yeah. the skeleton of that idea, which this book really nicely does. Thank you. Um, in, in your book, when I read, there were different components of that idea. Mm -hmm. And I don't want you to share all the components, but give one or two components that, you know, people can know about. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the, so I think picking up on this idea of looking at your idea through skeptical eyes, right? So somebody who isn't already convinced that it's the right answer. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest thing about building a story about your idea that someone will tell themselves is that you, I say there's two things that are really important to, to anchor it on. And one is how can you anchor your idea in something that somebody already wants? Of the two things, that's probably the easier one. I call that the goal in the book, but this is the audience goal. What is something that they're already looking for that mm. your answer provides? Um, and this is not something that you know deep down they're looking for. This is not a thing that you wish they were looking for. This is something that they're literally looking for looking right for. now. It's a, it's an urgent issue, the kind of thing that they are um, being tasked to solve by their boss or that they are, you know, they're searching on their own on Google because it's, you know, it's just, yeah. you know, it's an urgent <laughs> issue. Or it's a persistent irritant. It's something that day in, day out, it's just this thing that they always have to work around. It's a pain in the butt, but mm. what else can they do? That's the kind of thing that you want to, like, the more that your idea can be anchored in something that somebody already wants, the more that they're going to be automatically curious about it, the more that it's already going to be relevant to them, mm. um, the more that you can start to say and make sure so just from an kind of idea validation standpoint, that your idea actually solves an important and urgent or persistent problem in the world, which is something I saw a lot with the absence of, and looking at TEDx applications where I'm like, this is a lovely idea, but I'm not sure what it does in the oh, world. Yeah. Um, the second thing is, and this is by far much harder, um, but it's critical is how does your idea align with something that your audience already believes to be true about the world? Mm. And this piece is super important because that's how you get someone to convince themselves that this is the right idea because it, mm. your idea is mimicking something else that they know to be true someplace else. So the example I use throughout the book is the De Beers diamond tagline, a diamond is forever. Um, mm. Because when that tagline was first introduced in 1947, People uh, believed that it was true, not as a diamond ring is forever, but this yeah. is why the tagline is so, so powerful. It's a diamond is forever. Whatever. And most people would say to themselves, well, it's true. You know, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a, yeah, I, I believe that. And if mm. I'm looking for, you know, if the thing that I want, right, align with something somebody already wants as well as what they already believe, if I want the best symbol of my commitment to somebody else, and I believe that a diamond is forever, it becomes really hard for me to stick with whatever my approach was before if it didn't already include a diamond. So yeah. I'd say, you know, of those, you know, those pieces, you know, there's a third in there that's important as well. But um, I, I think the just in, to be consistent with what we've been talking about, Manpreet, the more that you can figure out how your idea um, again, anchors with something that somebody already wants and anchors mm. with something they already believe, the stronger your idea is going to be and the more successful your message around it is going to be. Mm. 
Yeah, that diamond story, uh, that diamond example is, uh, again, an idea that everybody understands, knows, and is able to relate. Um, and, you know, I didn't, I have forgotten the parts of the books, but the minute, but the minute you said diamonds, I, it just everything came back. And that's the beauty of that red thread that it's just keeping that thing together. Um, you mentioned TED, uh, TEDx and, uh, you know, it's, it's a stage that a lot of people, especially in the research and uh, even now in marketing and people who are coming with new businesses want to be on. And in your experience with, um, you know, more than 3,000 presentations that you have worked with or the messages that you've worked with and probably a lot more that didn't <laughs> go through also, what has been um, common thing about the ones that really stick and the mm -hmm. ones where didn't do well, even after get, getting the TEDx stage, they didn't sort of got the similar response from the audience. And yeah. Uh, well, first, cl clarification, the 3,000 presentations that I have done are kind of my own personal, like across okay. the, all of the years. Um, I would say from a TEDx standpoint, you know, we, you know, I've, I've had a direct hand in probably about 60 of them with TEDx wow. Cambridge at this point. Um, uh, and then with my own, with my own clients, I'd probably add another 20 or 30 or 40 mm. or more. So probably close to hundred. Hundreds. Um, yeah. yeah. So what sticks and what doesn't? Um, so seven of the talks that I've worked on with TEDx Cambridge and with others have, have been promoted to, to TED.com. And that's a pretty high number yeah. ratio of the, you know, out of like, say out of 67 of them have, have gone forward to TED.com. Mm. Um, so I think that there's a, the ones that really stick with people, I mean, Ted is a black box, I have to tell you. So some of the things that, you know, I think sometimes um, talks resonate with people because it's 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 the right message at the right time. Uh, mm. It's the thing that people are thinking about. It's a thing that that sometimes they tie into to persistent topics of human nature. Um, but the the real the trick, I think, and it's it's one I, I talk about in the book as well, is that the idea at the core of the talk combines something people want, which we've already talked about, with some via means they don't expect, right? It gives them something mm. that they want via a means they don't expect. So for instance, didn't work on this talk, but Amy Cuddy's power pose yeah. talk um, combines something people want via means they don't expect. And if I were to say that, her talk combines how you can use body language, that's the unexpected part, to overcome imposter syndrome. That's the thing mm. that people want. So if you're somebody who suffers from imposter syndrome or just wants to feel more confident, maybe you don't fully suffer from imposter syndrome, the idea that your body language could be a path to doing that was unexpected. It just not, it wasn't something that people had heard before. And I think that the most, uh, you know, if, even if we talk about, you know, kind of the epically famous ones, like, you know, how uh, schools kill creativity, um, that's, that's, again, like something people want. I want to do the best thing for my child. What's the best, you know, unexpected thing? Oh, my gosh, this <laughs> thing that I'm doing that I think is good for my child may actually be doing something really awful to them. Mm. Um 
so I think that I, I think it's always something like that. There's just, and that's why I think it's getting increasingly hard to find a, and, and to generate really good TED and TEDx ideas because it's not that there's a shortage of ideas in the world, not at all. Yeah, yeah. It's that the, in a, in a way, TEDx, which if people aren't aware of the difference between TED and TEDx, TEDx is kind of like a franchise of TED. It's a, you know, they're, they, they have to sign on and go through training and, and subscribe to, and get a license from TED. But essentially within certain boundaries, they, they can do what they want with, you know, choosing the speakers and, mm. you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, there's just so many of them now yes. <laughs> um, that, Unless you are somebody who is actually in the business of creating knowledge, not just mm. synthesizing knowledge, not just applying it, um, unless you're in the business of actually creating knowledge, which, you know, for us at TEDx Cambridge is essentially academics uh, in a mm. large in a large way, um, not exclusively, but close. Um, it's really hard to actually say that you've got something genuinely new and, and unexpected out there in the world, and. But those are the ones that, you know, it's just, it's that intersection. I mean, I think one of my personal favorites of the last you know, five years um, is Suzanne Samard's talk on, on you know, how trees talk to each other. Um, mm. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, if I were to put my own process on it, it's like, oh, how does, how does her idea, um, which she's proven out, she's created this knowledge in the world that trees mm. talk to each other through a, a substrate of, of essentially mushroom connections. That's oversimplifying mm. it. Um, how does it get something that people want? It, it ties into for those people who are interested in like, how do we how do we preserve right the natural world that's important to us? If you're interested in that, then all of a sudden she's indicating like she's brought in this new piece of information that mm. trees talk to each other through the fungal layer that's underneath them. It's like, oh, holy cow, we have yeah. not looked at that like at all. We haven't even mm. thought about that. What does that mean? And so I think it, as I'm talking through it, I think there's this Third piece that really takes something over the top. I think a great idea can give something people they want by means they don't expect. But you know what I think the best TED and TEDx talks to is they make people feel a little bit smarter about something. Mm. You know, they just give them this, this, this like, oh, I've got this thing that I can go tell other people about. Um, and that's how Jonah Berger's work on Contagious, I mean, you know, and how ideas spread. I think that's the, that's a real piece of it is that, um, you know, the social currency that can come from an idea when you get to say to someone, Hey, did you know mm. trees talk to each other? Um, did you know, to use one of our examples from TEDx Cambridge, D. Raj Roy, did you know that we can restore the pathways to early memory, to memories in early stage Alzheimer's mice? Mm. Like, did you know that we can do that? Because that kind of, did you know, not in a condescending, like, Oh, I know a thing that you don't, but this, in this helpful, like, Wait. There yeah. might be an answer like that we didn't know about before. I think that's where there's this magical combination. I would say even uh, Jill Bolte Taylor's talk on my stroke of insight um, is that too, right? Like her talk is all about answering why is it that you know certain people are are you know which, she frames it as you know how does why does she process the world in one way and her brother who's schizophrenic 
process the world in another way. Mm. And her answer is, is that for, you know, after she's gone through this experience of a stroke that mm. um, it's the people who can kind of tap into both sides of the brains kind of consciously yeah. or not yeah. that are the ones that are able to do that. Well, that's a cuckoo bananas like idea. If you think about it from the get go, you're like, what? I would wait. And that's part of the reason why her talk is so brilliant because by the end of it, you're like, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But this kind of, I know for instance, that like her talk is what, you know, in my mind, it links up with all the kind of more recent conversations about uh, psychedelics and like Michael Pollan's new book. And, you know, just this, I think people are starting to appreciate this. Oh, there's a, there's a layer of something that we haven't seen before. And I think that's, that's a very long answer. Um, but I think that that's really what makes something really good is not just that you've got a new take on something, but you've actually, you're creating like I just come back to that phrase. It comes from my uh, mm. uh, friend, and I don't know if she realizes it. Mentor Ruth Gotian, who who talks about like that's a you know that's a, a, a creation of knowledge, um, and I think that's when you create knowledge. That's you, you're able to do all of those things. You're able to answer a question that people want. You're able to find a way that people don't expect, and because you're creating knowledge you're, and sharing it, you are helping people to feel just a little bit smarter about themselves or the world. And I think most people want to feel that. Yes, and that is beautiful. And I only know the last talk you mentioned, Delta Boys, that's the one I've seen. And I think one of the beauty of that is it brought people from different worlds also together, like not only the academia, not only the science, but also people who are a little bit more on the spiritual side of the things. Yep. It just connects those, intersects those thoughts. So that was, yeah. was a beautiful it's such a be I like, I just, I also appreciate that talk from a construction standpoint because it is, um, it's a very technical talk. If you go back and look, you know, read it or listen to it, like she uses a lot of technical mm. stuff in it. Um, but I love how she slowly moves from a question that people are, that are, you know, willing to ask like yeah. why, you know, why is it that her brother, she and her brother experienced the world differently mm. to this answer that is just, if she started there, I don't, you know, like I, people wouldn't have gone with her. So the, yeah. the structure of that talk, I think, you know, that's another thing that plays into it is kind of understanding the baseline level of readiness of an audience to hear an idea in a certain way. Um, and there's lots of examples of different ways that different speakers do this, but um, I think she knew consciously or intuitively that she couldn't come right out with the answer. Like yes. that, Hey, we're, we are just absolutely not tapping into both sides of our brain. There's a whole other world out there and experience out there in this other brain um, that a is possible for us to, to tap into and B we'd all be a lot better off if we could. I mean, I think if we started there, people are like, mm -mm, no, no way. Yeah. yeah. But just yeah. the, the evolution that she takes over that talk is just, it's, it's masterful. Yeah. Thank you for pointing out those talks out. Make sure to put in the notes so people who are curious can go and <laughs> listen to these talks. These are beautiful talks. And when you mentioned, uh, you know, um, having a component uh, in your talk or message that says that makes you feel smarter or ask you, hey, did you know that? I remember um, just a couple of days ago, my son is uh, it's almost five. He's, uh, in, he turns five in March, and he, I was picking up from the school, and he's he was that. Era, do, do you, uh, did you know who created this world? 
And I was like, mm. who's like God? And he had that lesson in the school. And, and I was like, okay, <laughs> it was just <laughs> amazing to have that interaction and, you know, that curiosity that, uh, and I could see in the eyes that he learned something new at that day in the school. And he was just so curious to share it for, you know, yeah. I love that. I, and I, I think, and kids are such a beautiful window into that, uh, into that, I, that, you know, what your son brings to mind is the fact that I think all of us, and you really see it in kids are trying to make sense of what we see all the time. And, yeah. and yes, stories are the way that we do that. But when you get a new piece of information like that, I think the reason why it's so powerful is that all of a sudden, like, you may not even realize there was a piece missing in the story, but all of a yeah. sudden when your son heard that for him, it's just like something clicked in yeah. and something was like, Oh, this thing, like, Oh, now, now there's a character in the story of this world that I see that now helps me make it make a little bit more sense. And I mm. think these pieces of information that I think people who are very talented at creating information, creating knowledge and putting out in the world mm. are doing exactly that. You're adding a piece of information that helps things make a little bit more sense, either you know, why something happens the way it does, or, you know, just, oh, now I, you know, what do I do next? Like what, okay, I, I maybe I have a belief about, you know, an understanding about why the world works the way that it does. But, you know, why is that? How do I put that into play? And I think that that's, yeah. I don't think we can ever lose sight of that because that's really, like, you know, I say this to my clients often, but an idea exists in between, right? Like, that's how I think about it. Like, you can, back to the sending and receiving, you can send an idea out there, but it's it's how it's received that really makes the difference. Yes. And that goes beyond just communications and, and you know, thinking about, like, you know, your audience's point of view. It really, it really comes in and says, you know, to me, testing... Like I test all my ideas and the, you know, the ideas that I'm looking at on behalf of other people from that initial standpoint of utility. Like, mm. does it help somebody else? Is it going to help somebody else? Um, mm. And not every idea has to do that. Those are the, the people I choose to work with or people who serve ideas bigger than, than, than themselves, mm. who ideas do serve those bigger purposes just because I like those ideas. They're more <laughs> engaging to me. Um, but I think that that's, Again, I just, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a mantra that I've often held for myself, which, you know, is be useful, be thoughtful, be passionate, be kind. Um, it's, it's not an accident that useful is the first one and kind is the last one. Um, <laughs> but those, you know, I think just, it, it, I think that summarizes a lot about why I do what I do and the kinds of ideas that I think are most effective because I just think people goes back to being, you know, certain, you know, heard and seen and validated Like people want to feel and be seen as smart, capable and good. And so when you give them something that makes them feel more of those more smart, more capable, more good, um, you're really validating their humanness, their humanity, their, their mm -hmm. personhood. Um, and back to what we were talking about at the top of the call, that is a great place to start anything is with having validated someone's personhood, you know, mm. th that oftentimes will open up many, many paths, uh, to change, to, to paths forward. Um, 
and I, you know, just what I see with my work, it's not hard. It's not hard it's not to hard. validate someone's personhood. It really isn't. Um, but you have to be willing to do it. And that's, I think probably, you know, that's probably my most, you know, where my curiosity takes me next is what yeah. happens when someone's no longer willing? Like, why does that happen? Why does it happen that someone's not just not willing to, to extend that grace to somebody else? I don't know. Uh, I want to know. <laughs> Those are um, really, really deep topics and it's deep, but it's also simple. It's, it's, it makes me curious, like how did we lose that fact? Like in the name of professionalism, we lost part of our humanity, humanism uh, there because we were just trying to be too professional about whatever we are doing. And, and thank you for bringing that message. It just makes me uh, curious, but I, it also makes me more respectful of what you do and what you stand for. And I'm so glad <laughs> you were doing this now. Um, and none of that's in the book, by the way. <laughs> well, but that comes back to what we're talking about as well. I mean, most people aren't walking around being like, how can I validate people's personhood? So it's like, I, I, you, you don't start there. You start with, you know, we're back to what people already want. People who have big ideas want to have, want them to have the power that they think their ideas deserve to have. And yeah. a lot of people struggle with that. And, you know, it's just one of those things like fundamentally that, that, you know, it's, it's, you know, we are seeking from other people, uh, mm. what we need to extend to them first, which is if we want somebody to validate our ideas, we have to validate them first. We have to validate the ideas they already have so that they can be open to, to hearing and doing something different. Mm. Amazing. Uh, I think for anybody who wants, who has ideas looking to get on TEDx or thinking about it, I think they need to go back 10 minutes and listen it again. Uh, there's a lot of gold in the last 10 minutes about how to, shape an idea into a message that sticks out. Um, so moving from messaging and ideas into branding, because that's what it does for brands. And one yep. of the things I've always seen, the bigger, the strong brands is all about that ideas. It's just the messaging is really strong. It connects and connects all the pieces that you've talked about. But what I'm seeing now, and uh, and you could, see uh, say how you see from your end of the things is that a lot of people very used to branding used to be for the companies mm. i think we have come into the place where it's for individuals people are realizing the importance of having their linkedin as their voice not their company's voice as what they're doing and um how do you see when it comes to branding in you know for individual why is it important why one why one should be doing it now well, okay. <laughs> so I have a slightly different perspective on, on branding because I think a lot of times what brands and branding, particularly when personal branding comes into play, mm. um, it ends up being aspirational and mm. meaning how I wish that you would see me. Um, and what ends up happening is because we're trying to create it's not, I don't think it's intentionally a false front. I think sometimes it is though, but, but we're trying to say, well, here's the here are the pieces of the, you know, I want you to think this about me. So this is what I'm going to put out there. Um, a couple of things happen. One is there's an inherent lack of integrity there, right? Because mm -hmm. it's not, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a put on thing. It's a, it's a 
I saw someone call it performative authenticity the other day. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Like you're performing like you're like how you want to be seen, but you're not actually, that's not actually it. And, but it actually is right. It's very meta. Um, but the fact that you would perform in that way to be seen in that way actually says a lot more about you than just being that way, which brings mm. me back to the red thread. And when I mentioned it earlier about, yes, you know, uh, it's a story that we tell ourselves, but when it becomes an internalized story, it becomes, as I described it earlier, really our operating system is that we, we, we build and fulfill the same pattern of stories over and over again. We answer the same questions. We tend to frame things as, as battles between the same kinds of things that were anchored in certain sets of beliefs. Um, and so what happens is then we really do have something that oftentimes is unconscious to us, the guides why we do what we do the way that we do it. And it's those stories that we're constantly telling ourselves. So when you kind of create, create a brand, when you try to consciously create a brand, you create this disconnect of integrity and actual authenticity. Mm. It's really effortful. Like it's, you have to work at that all the time. And then the, which is hard and means that you're not doing as well, a good of a job mm. on something else because there's a limited amount of work that we could put in the world. And the third thing is, is that it also means that you're probably exercising muscles that aren't actually as strong as the ones that are the ones that guide what you do, what you do, you know, guide what you do the way that you do it all the time. Mm. Um, in other words, there's a reason why for most of us, the strongest set of muscles in our bodies is our legs. Mm. Why? <laughs> because we stand and walk for most of us, right? And so for yeah. those of us who stand and walk, that's our strongest Muscle. set of muscles. But that means that even if we're not walking, we can do really strong things with our legs, even though that may not be where we built up those muscles. But if we decide to go rock climbing someday, right? Then, well, then we're going to discover that it's a lot more efficient to push with our legs than to pull with our arms. Why? Because those muscles are already built. So- I uh, I think what happens with personal branding is we choose the oftentimes we choose how we want to be seen and then we work backwards. Hmm. And I think that it's a lot easier, more sustainable, more differentiating, and ultimately it has more integrity to start with why you do what you do the way that you do it and package that and just hmm. make that because it's just a lot easier. Um, and I'm saying that as someone who I know people, you know, people regularly said, you know, Oh, Tams, you have a very strong personal brand. I'm like, no, no, I, I don't. I just, I just don't do stuff that isn't consistent with who I am and what mm. I like period. Mm. <laughs> and by having figured that out, it just makes a lot of it a lot easier. So yeah, I have giant polka dots on my wall because I love giant polka dots. Right. And yeah, it tends to be consistent with the other stuff that I do. Because I like patterns like that. Like, it's just, you know, I just, people don't need to spend so much time worrying about, about personal branding. Just yeah. have integrity to who you are and what you do and what you care about, which means you need to stop and figure out who you are, what you do and what you care about. Um, but I have found increasingly that the, the you know, that, that finding your red thread and it's, you know, yeah, it's a slightly different adaptation than the way I wrote it around. I wrote about it in the book, but by finding that, like, what am I trying to do? What questions mm. am I trying to answer? How, what gaps am I trying to close in the world? What do I believe? What are the mm. sets of skills that I've developed as a result? 
you start to have incredible clarity about not only what you do, but why it's important, why how you do it is different than anybody else, um, and how all of that has power and value that you can use to your and the world's advantage. So start there. Mm. This is beautiful. I've, I've never heard somebody talk about brand in this way. Like I've heard people talk, be authentic, be authentic, but you can get lost in that what is authentic and what you said was so deep in a way that go figure out who you are before trying to build that brand. Because if you don't even know who you are, then you're doing that. You're building out. your brand all the time, whether you are doing it consciously or not. Like the way I yes. think of a brand is the sum total of people's experiences with you. So if you don't know what you're doing, like that is your brand. Your brand is going to yes. be this kind of mishmash of like somebody who's representing themselves this way in the market, but acting like this. Well, that's yes. not an awesome brand. So <laughs> Like I said, and the, and the gap is really hard to maintain. So like, again, I'm just, maybe I'm just inherently lazy, but just who are you? Like, what do you do? Like, start there. It there. So there is value in that. I believe that mm. to my core, that who you are, what you do, why you do it is already strong. There is already value. There is already differentiation. And what would it mean for you who's trying to figure out your personal brand, if you just started with that as the assumption that you mm. already had it, that it was already strong, what, what does that look like? What is that strong brand that you have already created? Cause you have, so start there because then you don't have as much work to do. <laughs> Lazy. Yes. Lazy. It is, is simple, easy, but also easy to get lost. Like people. Yeah, uh, it is. Because yeah. people I, are not taught to, you know, know who we right. are. And so I like to be, maybe I'm a lone voice in the wilderness to the other side, just saying like, you know what you, most of the people who are trying to do something else probably have something to sell you. It's, and it's not that the, you know, everybody's got to do their thing. Um, and sometimes you need that outside set of eyes to help to understand. Yes. But the minute you start to feel like I need to do this in order to be seen this way, that's when you know, you've already stepped out beyond yourself and not in mm. a good way. Right. Mm. You, you, you don't need to do anything different. You just need to capture what it is that you already do differently. Mm. Amazing. Um, so, so if I was an engineer, right, I'm just starting putting my LinkedIn, I'm just trying to pick an example and I'm starting, I want to, you know, show via means of LinkedIn, what I do. What I used to do earlier and still a lot of my experience would show is like just title who I work for a little bit of just a few lines of the descriptions. Um, and what you're saying is that, uh, you know, add how are you doing, like show your work in that area, just not leave. Yeah. That. Yeah. There was, I did. So there was a while where I was doing a feature, uh, as part of my newsletter and part of my YouTube channel where I was calling what's missing from my, this message. And someone asked me to take a look at their LinkedIn mm. bio. Um, and, and I think that probably summarizes really well, my thoughts on that, how to, mm. how to do that. Um, but yeah, I do think, you know, that, that if somebody says to asks you what you do, um, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's important to give people a bucket so they understand kind of roughly how to start to think about you. But then um, the more that you can hone that into something where go, somebody goes, oh, I want that. I need that. Um, mm -hmm. That's important. Like that's, you know, that's, and that's how I eventually landed on 
English to English translator because most people get it. Like they just get it instinctively. They're like, okay, whatever their context they bring to it, if that's something that they need, then they know immediately they need it. They're mm-hmm. like, so, um, you know, and I, and because not everybody understands like message strategy or something like that, or, you know, idea strategy, like whatever, but, but most people understand like English to English or language to language translation. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to get that. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I will look around and put that link to your talk that you mentioned. So if anybody is curious to see how to do it, they can watch your YouTube. Super. Good. Um, so when Tamsin is not working, making ideas, click for message strategies, um, you know, what do you do for fun? What ideas create fun for you? Uh, okay. So most recently, going to cut top of mind, my husband and I, we just adopted uh, a retired racing greyhound, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> um, learning the world of greyhounds and, and being a dog mom, um, uh, that has in no way supplanted my affection for my actual children, um, mm-hmm. who are a ton of fun, but I, you know, it's kind of the fun, fun stuff. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of crossword puzzles. I do the New York times crossword puzzle every day. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of, uh, mystery novels. So I like reading those, I kind of move through like big sets. So I read all of the Sherlock Holmes novels and then I read all of the Agatha Christie novels. And then I've read all of the, Rex Stout Nero Wolf novels. And then I read all the James Bond novels. And, um, <laughs> Amazing. So yeah, I think those are some of the things. And occasionally when it's not uh, affected by pandemics as it currently is, ballroom dancing. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, thank you so much for this. How can people find you and your work? I will put in the show notes bar. What is yeah, preferably for TamsinWebster.com. I'm, I'm, as far as I know, literally the only Tamsin Webster in the universe. So not yes. too hard to find. Um, so yeah, TamsinWebster.com. Uh, I, I love it. If people sign up for my newsletter, TamsinWebster.com slash newsletter. Um, I, you know, every week putting out something that I hope is useful uh, to mm. folks that help them make their messages or their content just a little bit stronger so they can get their big ideas out there in the world. Amazing. Thank you. I will put that in the show notes again. Thank you so much for this time. I know it was ton of value. I, you know, um, somebody who has moved from the engineering into the space with podcasting and I still am learning and I got a lot of value, not only just, uh, from your professional side of things, but also learning your humanness and how connected and strongly you believe in the ideas of humanity. It, it was wonderful. It was a gift for me to learn that, you know, there are people so like you that, you know, even in your spaces, you're talking and bringing about that. So thank you so much, Tamsin, for that. My pleasure, Manpreet. Thank you so much for having me. All right. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did and got some valuable nuggets out of it. If you liked it, there are other shows you can watch. There are exactly what you need. And I ask you to like, comment, subscribe. Let me know what you thought of the show. Uh, really, I want to hear from you firsthand what you felt, what you liked, what you didn't like. So thank you and see you around.